Nancy tries to get the evil out. Or maybe she was probably trying to pray the gay away. I, yeah, whatever, we'll talk about that coming up. More digital ID crap, more censorship crap, and how to leak from the Supreme Court. We'll give you lessons tonight. Welcome to the Jay Sheldon Show. Hello, welcome. We are live on Rumble.com, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch.tv. We are coming to you across the planet from the wonderful country of Malaysia, where it has been raining off and on all day. All day. All day. In fact, in our Miko update, we got a funny story about Miko's airplane ears when she's getting wet. <laughs> I won't tell you about that. Yeah, so uh, thank you for all those folks and also our podcast listeners. Hello, welcome in to you. Uh, we're available as a podcast, the audio part of our show, on all the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Just look for The Jay Sheldon Show. And uh, that's our logo over here. And uh, click subscribe and you're good to go. And uh, hundreds of you do that. Thank you. We, we really do. We got, a lot, we got a lot of downloads and subscribers over there on our podcast. So thanks for that. Uh, all right. Let's get right into it with our latest update on our favorite furry little friend. It's the Miko Update. Miko is great, and uh, let's see, where is she? What happened to Miko? Uh, she's supposed to be over there. Let's uh, let's take a look and see. Uh, boop, there she is. Yes, uh, thanks, uh, May Lim, by the way, for this great shot of uh, Miko. Really, really good, great picture. We love it. Um, anyway, uh, as I said, it's rained like crazy here today. And uh, we went out for our evening walk. I'm watching the radar, and it looks like we're going to get hit, but it looks like there's just enough of a gap that we can get out there and get a good walk in. So we harness her up, grab the leash, and off we go. And we get probably halfway through our normal walk, and suddenly it starts to sprinkle. So I thought, okay, turn it around, head home. We got a couple of blocks from the house, and it started to pour. I couldn't get any pictures because I was more worried about getting us home and staying as dry as we could, but that was useless. So anyway, the funny thing is Miko loves water. She loves to, she's not so hot on bass, but she will play with the water coming out of the hose for hours. Uh, but the rain is another story. So as she's running ahead of me, trying to get home, uh, her ears... Shiba Inus do this thing called airplane ears, where their ears go flat. They do that when they're really happy. They squint their eyes and they get their airplane ears and their tails going. And uh, apparently they do it when they're getting wet too, because the whole way home, she was squinting and her ears were down with her little airplane ears. So it's very cute. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's our... Our Miko update on our favorite furry little friend, which is brought to you by the good folks at BarkBox. BarkBox.com slash Miko. It's a monthly subscription service, which you sign up for. You pay for it, of course. But if you use our link and you sign up for a multi-month subscription, you'll get a month free. Six months will get you seven. Twelve months will get you 13. That's a big savings, too. And every month... 
you will get a themed box of goodies for your dog. You can specify small, medium, or large dog. And also, if your dog has any allergies, you just tell them and they'll make sure you don't, you know, fish, chicken, beef, whatever. And uh, you get two toys, which are sized right for your dog, and they are incredible. You'll get a couple of bags of all-natural dog treats and a dog chew. Uh, every month, that'll come right to your door. Uh, just check it out using our link. It's the top link in our description, our show notes, which is down below. And uh, BarkBox.com slash Miko. That's all you need to know. Check it out and sign up. You'll not only help out the show, but you will put a big airplane-eared smile on your doggy's face. BarkBox.com slash Miko. All right. I got a couple of things that I wanted to share with you that are not in our show notes tonight. So give me half a break here. And uh, I wanted to show you, let's see, where is it? Where'd it go now? Oh, no. I had it bookmarked. Now I can't find it. Hmm. Okay, it's not there. This is what happens when you produce your own show, okay? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, here's one. This is cool. Check this out. This is all the plane traffic across the U.S. and the EU in one hour. Look at that. Do you fly? Every one of those white dots represents a plane. You see the globe turning? There's the U.S. There's the East Coast, Atlantic Ocean. There's Europe. My God. I don't think I ever want to fly again. Look, in one hour, live flights. That's scary toast. Jeez. Okay, and that's not the only thing. I've got one more that is not in our show notes, but uh, my cousin Gary Moser posted this. Let's see if I can get it to come up. And uh, it, it's, it's actually funny, and I have a great answer for this, which is exclusive to Malaysia. So, uh, let's see. Ah, here we go. What is a common saying that annoys you. I'm sure there's one out there you can think of. Some commons that saying that everybody says that annoys you. Here in Malaysia, for over 20 years now, everyone says it. And it bugs the hell out of me. Every time. Maybe because I'm one of these independent American people who, you know, doesn't want to be told what to do. Probably is. But there's a saying here, when someone's trying to explain to you something, they say, you must understand. And every time I hear that, the hair on the back of my neck goes up and I start to growl. You must understand. No, dude, I must not do anything. You have to understand I can kind of accept that, but you must understand is a common phrase here in Malaysia that everyone says, and it bugs, like I said, bugs the 
hell out of me. I cannot stand it when people say that. It drives me nuts. In fact, most of the time when someone says that to me, I'll say, "Mm, no, I must not understand. If you'd like to explain something to me, which will help me to understand, fine. But don't tell me I must understand. It's a Malaysian thing. It's nuts. Don't do it. It's actually rude. So anyway, those were the couple of not in the show notes tonight things that I just saw last minute and I wanted to share with you. But our headline tonight, good old Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) Thank God she's not the speaker anymore. Anyway, this is from theblaze.com, but there's two parts to this story, so don't go away. Nancy Pelosi ordered priests to perform an exorcism at her home after her husband's hammer attack. That according to Pelosi's daughter. There's the witch. Nancy Pelosi summoned priests to perform an exorcism at her home following the alleged hammer attack on her husband, according to the daughter of the former House Speaker. No, I don't want to sign up. Alexandra Pelosi, the daughter, recently revealed a devilish detail about her family, how they reacted to this reported hammer attack on Paul Pelosi in October, for which, I might remind you, we have still not seen the body cam footage or any of the, I'm sure, hundreds of cameras stationed around the Pelosi home. The diabolical revelation was made during a New York Times interview published on last Saturday. Uh, The New York Times opinion columnist Maureen Dowd went to lunch with Nancy Pelosi at the swanky Four Seasons, Dowd went out of her way to highlight that Pelosi was dressed in a hot pink pants suit with matching four-inch Jimmy Choo stilettos. Malaysia's Jimmy Choo, by the way. She ate a truffle butter roll and chocolate-covered macadamia nuts. Who gives a crap? Anyway, discussing the alleged attack on her husband, Pelosi said it was unimaginable having her home turned into a crime scene. Well, tell her husband not to hook up with weirdos and hammers. Uh, And Alexandra Pelosi, the daughter, revealed the reported attack deeply affected her mother. I think that weighed really heavy on her soul. I think she felt really guilty. I think it really broke her. And she said, over Thanksgiving, she had priests coming to try and have an exorcism of the house and having prayer services. Well, My first reaction was, wait a minute, didn't this woman get, like, excommunicated from the Catholic Church for her abortion support? Or, at the very least, they told her she couldn't take communion anymore, or some, I don't know, whatever you Catholic people do. I think that's what I remember reading somewhere. Well, just a short while ago, after having already planned on covering this story for our show, I found out, apparently, she lied. This is from the Gateway Pundit. She lied. Church says no exorcism took place at the Pelosi home. And it's probably just as well, because you know that scene with, uh, I forget the actor's name, 
where he puts his hand over the holy water in the church and it starts to boil. That's what I'm thinking would happen at Pelosi's house. Anyway, uh, uh, Alexandra, as we just told you, claimed that uh, her mom had performed and had an exorcism performed, um, raised some eyebrows and had people asking, wouldn't an exorcism on the Pelosi home result in a massive cyclone bomb inferno? (laughs) Yes, you're right. That's probably exactly what would happen. Well, now we know the truth. According to Fox and Friends weekend Sunday morning, there was no exorcism at the Pelosi house. The local Catholic church confirmed that. Uh, Rachel Campos Duffy then added the reality check to the story, said, well, her radical anti-life position should weigh more heavily on her soul, and she's not allowed to receive communion in San Francisco. Truth. (laughs) Oh, my. Anyway, the Gateway Pundit reached out to the Archdiocese of San Francisco. They're going to report any other information they get, but apparently... The story ain't true. And the Catholic Church said, nope, didn't happen. In fact, I would guess it probably couldn't happen. (sighs) That woman. When are we going to get to see that, uh, that footage from the body cams, from the Pelosi crime scene? Hmm? Ever? I'll guarantee you it'll never happen. All right. The uh, WEF, World Economic Forum, is it still happening? How long does that crap go on for? Hopefully it's almost over. Anyway, uh, this is a UN regulator who is issuing a stern warning to Elon Musk. Take a look at what she has to say. Listen closely. Uh, our message was clear. We have the rules which, has to, which have to be complied with and otherwise there will be sanctions. Hmm. The EU Commissioner for Value and Transparency speaks to Euro News about the Elon Musk Twitter takeover. I think that uh, the confidence has been weakened and I, I had quite high level of confidence when it comes to Twitter. I have to say that we worked with knowledgeable people, with the lawyers, with the sociologists who understood that they have to behave. Who understood that they have to behave. In other words, they have to censor stuff we don't agree with. People are not allowed to have their own opinion about things. People are not allowed to hold opposing viewpoints. And if we don't like what you're doing, we will impose sanctions. She keeps going. Listen to this crap. In some decent way, Hmm. not to cause really big harm to the society. I always felt that this (laughs) this notion of responsibility was there. So this is what I don't feel from uh, Elon Musk personally. This is what I don't feel from Elon Musk, personally. Where do you get off, lady? This is the kind of crap the UN, the World Economic Forum, 
are trying to shove down our throats. If you don't agree with what they want you to know and believe and Kool-Aid to drink, they want you shut down. And Elon Musk said, not on my watch. Well, good for you, Elon. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, you know, the thing is, it's right there. They don't hide it. They tell you. They tell you what they're doing. They're not even trying to hide it. Unbelievable. Just like digital ID, digital currency, all that other crap they're trying to push down your throat. And sure enough, it just keeps happening. Yet another company wants your hands to be a payment method. Yeah. By scanning the veins in a customer's palm. I keep saying it, but here we go again. Ingenico, which is a credit card company, has unveiled a palm vein biometric payment system in partnership with Fujitsu Frontech North America and Fulcrum Biometrics. The system is designed to enable contactless transactions, which, you know, is basically digital ID crap. It's supposed to streamline the payment process. What did I tell you? That's how they sell this crap. It's for your own good. It's for the common good. It'll make your life easier. It's so convenient. You know what? So is handing over a $50 bill in cash. That's, I find, extremely convenient. And you can't control what I pay for things with or what I buy or what I say. The solution may also minimize the risk of fraud to businesses, but raises a lot of questions surrounding privacy and civil liberties. The system uses a technology biometric identification system, and guess where they're rolling it out first? China. Oh, and the U.S., which these days isn't looking that different from China, is it? Palm vein identification, a much faster way of making payments than the traditional chip and pin. Oh, it's faster, so it's better. And offers several tangible advantages. They're still trying to sell you this crap. None of the security risks of other biometric methods. We're seeing, according to the VP, uh, Executive Vice President of Global Solutions Development, we're seeing a lot of interest from merchants in the solution we've de developed uh, palm vein identification gives them new opportunities to authenticate and identify their customers. You know, it's like when uh, when Bob Lazar was describing at Area 51, they put their hand down and it measures the bones in your hand, which apparently the length of the bones in your hand are like fingerprints. Nobody's are the same. Now you put your hand down on this reader and it scans the veins in your palm. The partnership uh, <laughs> partnership is scheduled to transform and revolutionize payment experiences for customers. It's all connected, folks. It is all connected. 
My tinfoil hat is firmly in place. You do not want this. Fight back. Fight against it. All right. The whole article, by the way, is in our show notes. You can read it. I always encourage you to go to our show notes, click on the links. It'll open in a new window and uh, and read the whole story because it just gets worse the more you read. Campaign funded by Pfizer and Moderna sent Twitter a weekly list of tweets to censor. No surprise here. From reclaimthenet.org, some of the content targeted by the campaign included articles that were using the news to further prove the CDC as being untrustworthy. The Public Goods Project, which is a nonprofit, they've developed several projects to fight so-called COVID misinformation. They got a $1.275 million from the Pfizer and Moderna Lobbying Group, Biotechnology Innovation Organization, BIO, funded by Pfizer and Moderna. They're a lobbying group to create a content moderation campaign that had heavy influence on Twitter's COVID misinformation rules. This was pre-Elon Musk, by the way. As a part of this campaign, they sent Twitter lobbyists and content moderators weekly emails containing lists of tweets they wanted censored. Lee Fang published one of the weekly emails that Twitter received from PGP as part of the latest release of the Twitter files. Collections of internal Twitter communications have exposed the censorship relationships Twitter had with government agencies, but this is directly with the manufacturers of the vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. According to Fang, one of the lists contained tweets the PGP wanted Twitter to take down, and another contained tweets they wanted Twitter to verify. Once again, here it is. This is the article, the uh, thread from Lee Fang. Check it out. It is in our show notes tonight. And once again, it will leave you like it left me, shaking your head. Unbelievable. Have you seen the latest from Tom Hanks? Speaking of vaccines and useless masks. Tom Hanks says he has no respect for people who don't wear a mask. Listen to this idiot. Where is he? Here we go. Hang on. I don't get it. (laughs) I, I simply do not get it. It is literally the least you can do. And if you want to, if anybody wants to build up an argument about doing the least they can do. I wouldn't trust them with a driver's license. I mean, when you drive a car, you got to obey speed li- speed uh, speed limits. You got to use your turn signal. You got to avoid hitting pedestrians. If you can't do those three things, then I get it. You shouldn't be driving a car. If you can't wear a mask and wash your hands and social distance, I, I don't understand. I-, I got no respect for you, man. If you're on Epstein's flight logs, which you are, I got no respect for you. So, Tom, shut up and go sit down. 
What a more. You know, you are a brilliant actor. And perhaps that's what you ought to concentrate on. Acting. Instead of encouraging people to do useless things. You ready for a recorded teacher for your student? We got a jam show tonight. So much crap packed in here. Check out the link in our show notes for this story. We've come to this. From the Washington Post, the geometry teacher in a classroom isn't a teacher. It's a recording. Chemistry students often teach themselves. Teacher shortages are getting renewed attention this year. But in Mississippi and other southern states, the crisis dates back more than a decade. Near the end of the day at West Boulevard High, and uh, Jordan Mosley is stuck. 15-year-old sophomore stares at her laptop, laptop, restarts the video. Her teacher that day is a stranger, a nameless, long-haired man on the screen. He explains two-column geometry proofs and how students could use the software to complete them. Prove if the length of AB is equal to the length of EF, the man says. But there's no one to ask for help in this classroom. Students stare sleepily at laptops around amid the din of a portable air conditioner. The only, uh, only a teacher's assistant can print out additional worksheets if they run into trouble. That's the only authority figure in the classroom. There's no teacher. So Jordan, a top student, decides to wait until she can see Miss Butler, the high school's popular math teacher, and the only one in the entire school. Now, these virtual sessions is not something related to the pandemic or a stopgap for a teacher who's sick. It is how sophomores are expected to learn geometry this year after the district couldn't find a teacher, a teacher shortage. In the Mississippi Delta, where schools historically have been vastly shortchanged, teaching candidates, especially math teachers, are very, very hard to come by. The nature and severity of the teacher crisis differs a lot from state to state, district to even school to school in some cases. And some districts have only recently started experiencing teacher shortages. But in many southern states, the problem has been going on, as I said, for over a decade. And the state has shortchanged districts like West Boulevard consolidated by millions of dollars in funding, failing to fund a program that would send more money to poor districts. Researchers found the schools that serve high percentages of minority students and students in poverty have more difficult finding and retaining qualified students, uh, qualified educators. The West Boulevard Consolidated School District is 98% black. 100% of the students qualify for free or reduced price meals. This is Will Smith, superintendent of the 
West Bolivar Consolidated School District. As Mr. Smith. Across the country, states, school districts, desperate for candidates, have even resorted to shortening the school week to make the job more appealing, eliminating requirements, and in nearby Oklahoma, they're permitting school districts to hire teachers who have no college education. In order to attract teachers, that's how desperate they are. This is a frightening story, and I encourage you to go check it out. It's, uh, It's scary stuff. It's a serious problem going on right now in the States, and nobody's really doing much of anything about it. All right. Hey, how would you like to become the next Supreme Court leaker? We won't get caught because, you know, they simply can't find you. I posted this in our show notes tonight. It's in our description down below. You check it out. How to leak from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court investigation report. Oh, will you stop with this? On how the Dobbs draft got out. Offers lessons for future leakers everywhere. So if you're thinking about becoming a leaker, pay attention. Less than two weeks ago, Supreme Court investigators looking into the leak of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization draft opinion had reportedly narrowed their inquiry to a small number of suspects. Well, 10 days after that news, the Supreme Court issued a report saying the investigation had failed to determine who was behind the draft opinion leak. Yeah, right. The public report provides insights into the investigation process taken by the court, identifies a huge number of inadequate security controls, provides recommendations on how to remedy the problem, which means uh, the report is doubly instructive for would-be future leakers, provides most a list of successful operational security techniques that leakers may have employed, as well as, thanks to the recommendations, forward-looking lessons on what to avoid in the future. This article is just, it's laughable. And when you get through reading it, you'll realize there is no way they actually tried to find the leaker, A, and B, they know who the leaker is, and they're not going to tell you. My first question was, is that because the leaker is actually one of the justices? Oh, think about that. Think about that. All right, one more. We're going to get on with our book here in a minute. Did you do dishes tonight after dinner or after breakfast or whatever meal you just had? Did you do the dishes or did you use a dishwasher? Well, this is such a cool story. Jean Mosier, again, thank you, Jean. She posted this. It's from Historical Photos of Women, and it's the coolest coolest story. This lady is Josephine Cochran, 
and she is the inventor of the automatic dishwasher. I kid you not. She lived from 1839 to 1913, largely unknown, and she should be declared the patron saint of the modern busy family. In 1886, 1886, she patented the first commercial dishwasher. She wanted a machine that would save time washing dishes and would prevent uh, broken crockery, you know, because a lot of these machines would just wind up breaking the plates. She was convinced there had to be a mechanical solution to the tedium of dishwashing. She grew up in a family of engineers, finding no one that could or would invent the machine she had in mind. She vowed if nobody's going to invent a dishwashing machine, I'll do it myself. (laughs) So she actually invented a contraption with gears, belts, pulleys that would take a cage filled with over 200 dirty dishes, reappear in a few minutes later with the dishes as clean as if they'd been hand-washed. Her machine, unlike others that had been attempted, was the first to use water pressure rather than scrubbers to clean the dishes. That was her big thing. It also had fitted racks to hold the dishes and the cutlery in place. She got a patent under the name of J.G. Cochran, probably purposefully hiding the fact she was a woman. Uh, She said, I couldn't get men to do the things I wanted in my way until they had tried and failed in their own. (laughs) Typical. She later explained, that was costly for me. They knew I knew nothing academically about mechanics, and they insisted on having their own way with my invention until they convinced themselves that my way was the better way, no matter how I had arrived at it. Well, in 1886, with the aid of a young mechanic named George Butters, she set to work in a woodshed behind her home and brought the first prototype to life. She had the patent, she had a machine, and she began to sell the dishwasher. She wanted originally to sell directly to women. Uh, They would appreciate how much the machine helped. Remember, 18, whatever this is, 1886. Um, Because very few households in the 19th century could afford to pay 100 bucks for the appliance. Her main customers wound up being large hotels and restaurants. She was very successful at sales, but it was very difficult to challenge the mores of the 19th century. So eventually, they made it cheaper, more streamlined. She exhibited at the Columbian Exhibition World's Fair in Chicago, and the orders came pouring in. With the assistance of her business partner, they opened a factory in 1898, and Cochran's Crescent Washing Machine Company was born. And uh, that is the inventor of the dishwasher, Ms. Cochran. Thank you for that. (laughs) Wow. Cool. How about that? The inventor of the dishwasher. I love it. Okay. What else we got happening here? How weird is that? Okay, hold on. Give me two seconds as we push forward. 
Okay. You ready for some book? Yeah. We read books on this show. We've told you that a thousand times. If you're new to the show, uh, we do classic books. We've done The Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, The Little Prince, Alice in Wonderland, uh, you name it. We've done so many. The Velveteen Rabbit we did. And um, and uh, right now we're doing White Fang, which is a fascinating book written by Jack London back in 1906. It is a classic. And uh, we've been loving this thing. It's... Uh, it's such an amazing story. All right. Uh, let's pop up the title to the book. There we go. And uh, let's move on over to White Fang. This chapter was about the little gray cub, one out of five. Like most creatures of the wild, he early experienced famine. There came a time when not only did the meat supply cease, but the milk no longer came from his mother's breast. At first, the cubs whimpered and cried, but for the most part, they slept. It wasn't long before they were reduced to a coma of hunger. There was no more spats and squabbles, no more tiny rages, nor attempts at growling, while the adventures toward the far wall ceased altogether. The cubs slept. While that life was in them flickered and died down. One eye was desperate. He ranged far and wide, slept but little in the lair that had now become cheerless, miserable. The she-wolf, too, left her litter, went out in search of meat. In the first days after the birth of the cubs, one eye journeyed several times back to the Indian camp and robbed the rabbit's snares. But with the melting of the snow and the opening of the streams, the Indian camp had moved away. That source of supply was closed to him. When the gray cub came back to life and again took interest in the far white wall, he found the population of his world had been reduced. Only one sister remained to him. The rest were gone. As he grew stronger, he found himself compelled to play alone for the sister no longer lifted her head, nor moved about. His little body rounded out with the meat he now ate, but the food had come too late for her. She slept continuously, tiny skeleton flung round with skin, in which the flame flickered lower and lower, and at last went out. There came a time when the gray cub no longer saw his father appearing and disappearing in the wall, nor lying down asleep in the entrance. This had happened at the end of a second and less severe famine. The she-wolf knew only why One-Eye never came back, but there was no way by which she could tell what she had seen to the gray cub. Hunting herself for meat up the left fork of the stream where lived the lynx, She'd found a day-old trail of One-Eye. She'd found him, or what remained of him, at the end of the trail. There'd been many signs of the battle that had been fought, and of the lynx's withdrawal to her lair after having won the victory. Before she went away, the she-wolf had found this lair, but the signs told her that the lynx was inside, and she dared not to venture in. After that, the she-wolf, in her hunting, avoided the left fork, for she knew the lynx's lair 
was a litter of kittens, and she knew the lynx was a fierce, bad-tempered creature and a terrible fighter. It was all very well for a half-dozen wolves to drive a lynx, spitting and bristling up a tree. Quite a different matter for a lone wolf to encounter a lynx, especially when the lynx was known to have a litter of hungry kittens at her back. But the wild is the wild, and motherhood is motherhood, at all times fiercely protective, whether in the wild or out of it. And the time was to come when the she-wolf, for her cub's sake, would venture the left fork and the lair in the rocks and the lynx wrath. Chapter 4. The Wall of the World By the time his mother began leaving the cave on hunting expeditions, the cub had learned well the law that forbade his approaching the entrance. Not only had this law been forcibly and many times impressed on him by his mother's nose and paw, but in him the instinct of fear was developing. Never in his brief cave life had he encountered anything of which to be afraid. Yet fear was in him. It had come down to him from a remote ancestry through a thousand thousand lives. It was a heritage he'd received directly from one eye and the she-wolf. But to them, in turn, it had been passed down through all the generations of wolves that had gone before. Fear, the legacy of the wild which no animal may escape nor exchange for pottage. So the gray cub knew fear, though he knew not the stuff of which fear was made. Possibly he accepted it as one of the restrictions of life. For he'd already learned that there were such restrictions. Hunger he'd known, and when he couldn't appease his hunger, he felt restriction. The hard obstruction of the cave wall, the sharp nudge of his mother's nose, the smashing stroke of her paw, the hunger unappeased of several famines, had borne upon him all that was not freedom in the world that to life there was limitations and restraints. These limitations and restraints were laws. To be obedient to them was to escape hurt and make for happiness. He did not question, out in this man fashion. He merely classified the things that hurt and the things that did not hurt. And after such classification, he avoided the things that hurt the restrictions, and restraints in order to enjoy the satisfactions and the remunerations of life. Thus it was that in obedience to the law laid down by his mother, and in obedience to the law of that unknown and nameless thing, fear, he kept away from the mouth of the cave. It remained to him a white wall of light. When his mother was absent, he slept most of the time, while during the intervals when he was awake, he kept very quiet, suppressing the whimpering cries that tickled in his throat and strove for noise. Once, lying awake, he heard a strange sound in the white wall. 
He did not know that it was a wolverine standing outside, all a-trembling with its own daring, and cautiously scenting out the contents of the cave. The cub knew only that the sniff was strange, a something unclassified, therefore unknown and terrible, for the unknown was one of the chief elements that went into the making of fear. The hair bristled upon the gray cub's back, but it bristled silently. How was he to know that this thing that sniffed was a thing at which to bristle? It was not born of any knowledge of his, yet it was the visible expression of the fear that was in him, and for which in his own life there was no accounting. But fear was accompanied by another instinct— that of concealment. The cub was in a frenzy of terror. Yet he lay without movement or sound, frozen, petrified into immobility, to all appearances dead. His mother, coming home, growled as she smelt the wolverine's track, bounded into the cave and licked and nuzzled him in undue vehemence of affection, and the cub felt that Somehow, he'd escaped a great hurt. But there were other forces at work in the cub, the greatest of which was growth. Instinct and law demanded of him obedience, but growth demanded disobedience. His mother and fear impelled him to keep away from the white wall. Growth is life, and life is forever designed to make for light. So there was no damming up the tide of life that was rising within him, rising with every mouthful of meat he swallowed, with every breath he drew. In the end, one day, fear and obedience were swept away by the rush of life, and he, the cub, straddled, and sprawled towards the entrance. Unlike any other wall with which he'd experienced, this wall seemed to recede from him as he approached. No hard surface collided with the tender little nose that thrust out tentatively before him. The substance of the wall seemed as permeable and yielding as light, and as conditioned in his eyes he'd seemingly of form he entered into what had been wall to him and bathed in the substance that composed it. It was bewildering. He was sprawling through solidity, and ever the light grew brighter. Fear urged him to go back, but growth drove him on. And suddenly he found himself at the mouth of the cave. The wall inside which he had thought himself as suddenly leaped back before him to an immeasurable distance. The light had become painfully bright. He was dazzled by it. Likewise, he was made dizzy by this abrupt and tremendous expansion of space. Automatically, his eyes were adjusting themselves to the brightness, focusing themselves to meet the increased distance of objects. At first, the wall had leaped beyond his vision. He now saw it again, but it had taken upon itself a remarkable remoteness. 
Also, its appearance had changed. It was now a variegated wall, composed of trees that fringed the stream, the opposing mountain that towered above the trees, and the sky that out-towered the mountain. And a great fear came upon him. And that's where we will leave it for tonight. We'll continue with this chapter coming up in our next stream, which will happen on Wednesday night of this week. All right. Cool. I love this book, White Fang by Jack London from 1906. That is going to do it for us for tonight. Thank you so much for coming along for the ride. Please, if I could ask you one big favor, that would be to follow or subscribe to our show. The button is right down here. It says follow or subscribe, follow on Rumble. Just click that button. It's absolutely free, costs you nothing, and it really helps the show out a lot. I will see you again on Wednesday. This is the Jay Sheldon Show. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 